where we share the super cool backstories and side gigs of the insights and strategies pros that you trust. Today's guest is Michael Schoenfeld, who is senior strategist at FCB, the agency uh, out of New York, uh, known as Footcone Belding, uh, part of the Interpublic Group. And fun fact for you here, uh, FCB has been around for almost 150 years and actually it's the third oldest continuously operating ad agency in the US. So there you go. Uh, but lest you think that makes them stodgy, of course they're not. Uh, in fact, they were named uh, Ad Week's 2020 Global, Brand, Global Agency of the Year, that's it. Uh, which uh, is quite notable because that's the year of the pandemic. So, uh, so good on you, so it's good stuff. Now, I met Michael, uh, on the Medium platform because of some really cool stuff that he had written uh, and I wanted to learn more about it. So I reached out to him and I discovered this really cool backstory uh, about how he got into uh, brand strategy position uh, life, working on the agency side and it's, uh, it's really cool. And I'm super happy to have you here telling us about it today, Michael. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on. Pleasure to be here. All right. Now I have to apologize because uh, we we just did this interview, uh, so this is the second time around. Um, but I, I forgot to hit record, so that's the perils perils of having a podcast on Zoom. So, so there you go. So thanks for sticking with me here, Michael. I really appreciate it. So let's let's do it, man. Let's get into it. So let's uh, let's hear a little bit about how you got into uh, into the agency world, working in strategy. Absolutely. I, I wasn't sure if you were going to mention that this was a take two. I, you know, I'm trying to remember all of the, you know, jokes and asides that I said. I'm trying to remember yeah. the good stuff. Get rid of the best. That's right. All right. I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> all that is to say, I work at FCB New York, uh, as Matt mentioned, uh, on the strategy team. Uh, and for folks who I guess aren't as familiar with brand strategy work, it's a lovely sort of amalgam of consumer psychology I guess like understanding of culture at large, maybe like cultural anthropology, if I really wanna pat myself on the back and pretend that I'm super smart. Uh, and then just kind of helping to inspire the creative team using audience insights, using consumer insights uh, to then like, I guess, build out creative work that truly matches our audience and what will resonate with our audience and build relevance with them uh, most deeply. So I've been at FCB uh, only for a few months. So I was not there for all of those Lovely awards that you mentioned, um, but uh, the the shiny trophies definitely did attract me to the building. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, and I uh, so so I guess then to to rewind and kind of uh, you know I forget what movie this is from, but it's like hey, how did I? You probably want to know how I got here, huh? Uh, <laughs> it might have been. Is that from the 80s or the 90s? I, I don't even remember. I have no idea, but uh, we'll go with it. We'll go with it. All right. I I might even be making this up. Um, <laughs> If anybody wants to write this screenplay, go ahead. I'm sure there's a listener right now who is like in their car being like, it's this movie. Just say the name. It's this. Because that's probably somebody crazy right now. I know. <laughs> um, anyways, uh, I got here into this, this lovely chair and the, <laughs> onto this podcast. Uh, really, I guess I can start my brand strategy journey or I can trace it back to college. Um, 
as many folks uh, who've gone on this podcast are musically inclined, I am as well. Um, I both write music uh, and I used to actually work in the industry uh, when I was much younger. And I, at the time when I was in college, uh, was namely pretty deep in hip hop, uh, both just as a fan and as a total nerd, uh, hip hop nerd. Uh, but then also in terms of, I guess, like working in the industry. And I happened to be working at a label uh, in which I had an experience that oddly enough made me realize I didn't want to work in music. And while I may have been a little bummed out for a few weeks after that experience, um, it kind of set me on this path where I had taken, I guess, what I learned from my job and then applied it to marketing where I was taking uh, marketing classes in college and I was very interested in sort of the, uh, the implicit associations that we make with different brands. So whether it's, right. you know, I think of McDonald's and I think of Golden Arches or I think of, you know, but up, 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 uh, I'm loving it. Um, <laughs> I, I was particularly, I, I guess, just in my own spare time, intrigued by how like rappers would drop references to specific brands. And right. I, I don't know, for example, uh, uh, Big Sean had a line where he said, you know, there's a million people behind me and I'm not talking Verizon. Uh, right. An homage to that old Verizon ad where I guess like the now Sprint guy, but former Verizon guy, you know, had like a bunch of people. Uh, and so I, I, I was just so curious as to how people would kind of arrive at those quick assumptions and how, you know, they would kind of connect those dots so quickly and what it would take to make them connect those dots. What creatively, whether it's the jingle that you use, whether it's like a specific tagline that you use, whether it's a lifestyle that you embed yourself in. Right. Um, and so I, I guess kind of stuck with that then after I graduated college uh, and really got my foundational strategy experience, writing creative briefs, uh, developing sort of like campaign rollouts, so maybe a little bit more of like communications planning um, that's like the technical term. So that's not just like the consumer insight, but it's like really understanding the media on which it runs and how you can tailor your creative to match that, uh, that media. Right. Uh, so I did that across a number of brands uh, at BBDO, another sort of original advertising institution. Mad Men yeah. was written about it. Um, yeah. I did not wear a suit, nor did I smoke any cigarettes or drink whiskey. <laughs> but uh <laughs> It was, I nonetheless felt like I was in a, a true advertising institution there. Um, and I got to work on a lot of great campaigns for uh, M&Ms, Snickers, Twix, uh, a lot of really fun, you know, Super Bowl campaign stuff, stuff that like when you're yeah. just starting out, you know, your eyes are just wide and you're just so excited to be there. Yeah. Uh, I got to do a lot of cause oriented stuff too, um, namely working on a lot of anti-gun violence work with um, Sandy Hook Promise. Okay. Which is an organization yeah. founded by uh, the parents of children uh, who were killed in the Newtown school shooting, um, which was incredibly powerful to work on. Um, and so having, I guess, that breadth of, you know, on the one hand, selling candy, uh, and on the other hand, you know, speaking to like such poignant, uh, deep-seated issues in society, uh, I think it really gave me such a, a versatile experience that I've then gone on to, I, I guess, appreciate um, strategy from a number of angles uh, at the job before FCB, sorry to really give you an elaborate timeline here. Oh, that's good. Uh, <laughs> I was working on Reebok, really heading up a lot of the, the strategy work for them. Um, I did not work at Reebok, to clarify. I just worked at an agency that worked with Reebok. Right. Uh, and I'm, I'm also pretty into, I guess, like menswear, um, streetwear, sneakers to some extent. And so working on that was great. And 
just having the breadth of whether it be candy, whether it be sneakers, whether it be, you know, ending gun violence in America, which I did not do at all, but, you know, maybe put the tiniest, tiniest dent in, hopefully. Um, or did, I would at least like to tell myself that because it makes me, makes me feel important. Uh, <laughs> uh, it makes my creative briefs feel powerful. Um, I, I, I just have had such a, like, interesting, I guess, variety of experiences strategically and then uh, within the last few months, I have found myself at FCB New York in the hallowed halls, uh, working namely with Michelob Ultra and a number of other uh, Anheuser-Busch InBev brands. Cool. So uh, yeah, the, the, the world of strategy is a big one, but nonetheless, the lessons that you learn, uh, you take with you through every, every client, every brief, and yeah, every, every great campaign you get to work on. Yeah, cool. That's, uh, that's a really interesting mix of categories and brands that you're working on. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But I want to dig a little bit more into uh, what you talked about, um, kind of working in music uh, while you were in Chicago or uh, before you, you started agency life. Um, and, and you alluded to uh, a record label internship and that stuff. And uh, it's not just a record label, right? But uh, tell us a little bit about the writing you were doing and then your your uh, work on the label. Sure. Um, so I went to college right outside of Chicago. Uh, and I just really luckily found myself there at a moment when a number of Chicago rappers uh, just began to truly enter the cultural zeitgeist and kind of helped to redefine the sound of, I guess, like modern rap music. Um, unfortunately, that's not Kanye West. It was a couple years later. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we, we can get to Kanye West in a little bit and how he's uh, informed my path. <laughs> when I was in college, uh, I, I was there at a time when Chance the Rapper was blowing up, Vic Mensa was blowing up, Saba, um, Alex Wiley. Um, I'm trying to think of some other folks. Um, no Name, who is sort of, I guess, maybe more on like an R&B side or like you know more enmeshed in that world but also maybe more aggressive rap music let's call it like drill music like Chief Keith like Fredo Santana Lil Durk um, and to be in this just incredibly lively music scene at a moment that felt so unpredictable and exciting and nascent um, I had never really done anything legitimate in the music space before I had only been an angsty teenager writing music in my bedroom and like reading you know hip-hop blogs so to be able to just kind of go to shows and meet these people outside and just like talk with them and for them also to just like accept me the doofus that i was and <laughs> bring me uh, a couple moments a couple minutes of their time just to talk about their craft and the incredible music they were making i mean it was just unbelievable and i was a kid in a candy store and so i uh i, I continued with that uh namely writing for like my school's sort of like music and arts publication uh about my experiences in that scene uh, and then I just somehow <laughs> really luckily, I guess, parlayed that into uh, an internship at Def Jam. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's awesome. I, I, I'm incredibly thankful for that experience. And that is the record label that I alluded to earlier that actually taught me that I did not want to work in music. But um, <laughs> I, I, I'm glad I wouldn't have wanted to have that have had that experience anywhere else, let's say. Um, and so, I, yeah, I went into Def Jam uh, feeling real, real confident and cocky about my sort of, I guess, like foresight or understanding of like what was going on in hip hop and, you know, where the genre was headed and where labels should be, 
uh, you know, spending their money. <laughs> and so I interned for their A&R department for a summer. Um, and I am forever grateful to an A&R named Sycamore, uh, who to this day is still legendary. I mean, he works with the likes of Travis Scott, with Miguel, with Jeremiah, with probably people who are even bigger than any of those names, uh, but just to name a few. Um, and he, I guess, uh, he gave me a, a summer long project of, I guess, coming to him with a list of artists and producers that Def Jam should look into signing and I guess like collaborating with more. And it, it was a pretty open-ended assignment. He's just like, hey, tell me what you think is cool at the end of the summer and we'll see if it works. Right. And I mean, as a, a young person who was just like happy to be there and, you know, just used to being, I guess, just, a, you know, kind of a, a goofy, goofy goober in a room of like <laughs> people who like really knew their stuff. Um, I was very intimidated. Uh, and I spent the summer very just uh, <laughs> nervously and feverishly, you know, digging into the depths of SoundCloud and just the blogosphere at the time. Um, and at the end of that summer, I finally have my, my, my big meeting with Sycamore where, um, you know, I come to him with my list and I'm like, you know, my hands are shaking. And we're in this room where it's literally two chairs. This is an empty, huge office with two chairs and like a large, like really tall speaker. And I mean, it just felt so climactic, let's say, or there was just yeah. there was gravity to the moment. And I, I, I plug in my iPod and I play him all these artists who I had, I had researched, uh, you know, quite in depth, I guess, uh, and thought to myself like, oh, well, you know, this guy, sort of fits this niche or I guess, you know, resonates with this type of audience that I know that Def Jam is chasing. So, you know, from a, just a marketing standpoint or a, let's call it product standpoint, like right. this, this feels like it has the makings of a really cool, I guess, partnership between this rapper and the label. So thinking of it in very abstract marketing terms, right. um, which I learned in the context of music, not the right approach. <laughs> uh, if a far less like visceral and like human oriented approach, which I can you know elaborate on in a minute. Um, he, he he sees me playing the music, or I play the music, and we're just sitting across from each other, and he just is sitting there, just completely still, completely deadpan, and I'm shaking in my boots, and I finally work up the courage to ask him, like, "Hey, is there is there something wrong? Like." Do you <laughs> Do you not like these artists? And he just, he pulls a jujitsu move and <laughs> says, you don't like the artists. And I was, you know, just blown away by that. And I was like, what, what do you mean? And he said, in order to work in this industry, you need to be willing to take a bullet for these artists that you believe in their vision so much. Uh, you're going to be with these people day in and day out throughout their creative process. And you need to understand what their intentions are in terms of being able to bring that to life for millions of people to see. And I think I thought of it too much as a maybe data centric or, you know, maybe quant heavy marketer who just like completely lost the human element and didn't even think about it from the perspective of like the person sitting, you know, on the subway listening with their headphones. I, I just yeah. saw it all in graphs and charts and uh, I learned a valuable lesson about the importance of like the human element in marketing and consumer insights. Um, and nonetheless, had that experience, was a little demoralized after I realized, okay, maybe this music thing is not for me, at least professionally. Uh, and so then, and then goes on, I, I then go on to, I guess, take that, those college classes and go to BBDO and then uh, now I'm here. <laughs>
That's that's uh, such a fascinating story, right? Um, first of all, to have the humility. I mean, I couldn't imagine what it'd be like to be in that room. I mean, and then <clears throat> and then when you walk out of that room, what that feels like. Um, so the first of all, the humility. Uh, but what's really impressive to me is how you sort of uh, were able to uh, take the lumps and then transition that to, hey, this is what I really wanted, right? Um, and I know having read some of your stuff on Medium, uh, you shared some great lessons from you know, what you learned in music. Is there, is there anything else that, that you would share or you have learned that you have applied to your professional agency? Yeah, I would say probably the uh, most powerful lesson and something that I kind of hold true still, ironically also as I'm writing music that I've learned from advertising, they almost feed into each other, yeah. is the importance of emotion and whether that's, of course, like understanding emotion from a neuroscientific standpoint, but if I go back to my Def Jam example, understanding it from just like the human experience standpoint, I need to, I, you, and any marketer um, needs to understand what type of emotional reaction they are looking to elicit uh, from their audience, like at the most, I guess, visceral and simple level. And, mm -hmm. I think with music and namely, you know, I've talked about rap, I guess, but I, I will also speak to sort of loud, angry punk rock, which is, um, I would say now even more so the, the love of my, my musical life. Um, and I, in that article and just in general, I've really drawn a lot of inspiration from punk because that music is so visceral. It makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. It makes you want to, you know, do a front flip off of stage, even though you might both your legs. Uh, all that is to say, it, it, it makes you feel something and good creative or good marketing should do the exact same thing. Uh, and so I think understanding what are the quickest and most surefire ways of eliciting the reaction that you want to elicit, uh, whether that be in a tagline, whether that be in a jingle, whether that be with your branding and sort of the, the visual elements of your brand. Um, I think understanding how the person on the other side, how you want them to feel is so important. Uh, and you could have all the, the graphs and charts in the world and all of the, I guess, like quant heavy stuff. But at the end of the day, if you don't know what you want somebody to feel, then your brand doesn't have a, doesn't serve a purpose or doesn't serve a clear one at the very least. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm really glad you brought that up. Um, because as you know, I'm a market researcher by trade and training. Uh, and so are a lot of people who, who listen to this, but I've always enjoyed uh, working with agencies and particularly like the, the strategist role, the planner role, uh, where you're kind of charged with um, making sense of all of these data sources, whether they be quantitative or qualitative. Somebody has to uh, figure out what's important, what's not, um, and translate that into something that's meaningful for the brand. So curious from your perspective, sitting in that seat, what, what else do you see as important for understanding humans, consumers? Yeah, I think on the one hand, the data that we will have or the consumer data and whether that be quant, qual, you name it, it's only gonna get more granular and technologically mind-blowing we're going to probably be able to like read people's minds <laughs> at some point you know Not too far off i think <laughs> yeah i'm sure elon musk or you know somebody at google has already already did that like 10 years ago and you know that's just <laughs> in testing right now um 
But I, I think despite the granular, or as we get more granular data, I think we should not take for granted our understanding of the relationship that a brand has with its audience. And what I really mean by that is that like advertising in general used to be this like very sort of top down thing, right? right? Where it's like you as brand advertise to the consumer and you're kind of talking at them being like, hey, buy our beer, buy our sneakers, uh, it's really cool. Uh, and you were kind of the boss in that situation and the consumer was just kind of getting it chucked at them and they then had to decide accordingly. Right. But because of the way in which, I guess the internet has like democratized information and also just the fact that we need to compete more than ever uh, for eyeballs and for attention and for relevance with people today, uh, we are more beholden than ever to our audience and to their wants and needs and to making them feel maybe not just cared for because I feel like that's a little congratulatory as a brand. Like, I don't think yeah. people, like I feel so cared for by Michelob Ultra. You know? <laughs> I, maybe it's not as deep as that, but I think people at the very least are tired of being advertised to or talked at in this very top-down hierarchical way. And I think understanding the relationship where the consumer is the boss, and I know I'm stealing what you said in our last iteration of this interview, you know, from a, a Jim Stengel quote, um, but the consumer really is the boss. And so putting them more in the driver's seat of the brand, and what I mean by that is like what the brand actually puts out into the world, whether it be bringing your audience into, into the creative process for like the, the ads that you create and the content you create having your audience like develop products itself. So I know for a fact that like Aerie and American Eagle, they bring in like sort of Gen Z, like a, they have like a Gen Z council of like younger people who help to inform product innovation. They help to inform the type of cause oriented and I guess like activist or activism oriented work that the brand does. I guess almost democratizing the brand to have your audience feel like they are at the table with you. Yeah. Um, I think just brings a completely new understanding of your audience. And I think it subverts that old idea of marketing um, that I think is just like so dead and will not get anybody anywhere anytime soon. So, so you could have all the data in the world, but I think it's understanding how you interact with your audience, how you want to make them feel and the kind of agency that you want to give them uh, with your brand. I, I think that is sort of where consumer understanding is headed. Yeah, cool, cool. No, I, I love that. Um, it, it's actually, if I, if I think of myself as a consumer, which of course I am, um, that feels like a nicer world, right? So I'm, I'm engaging with brands rather than uh, just being talked to, uh, where I just have to listen to the messages and choose which one sounds best, you know, um, that you actually have some sort of stake in it with the brands that, uh, that you buy. So cool stuff. Awesome. Excellent. All right, so this is a podcast, right? So I know you're uh, you're a media guy, right? You, you uh, consume tons of media. So uh, what other podcasts, uh, blogs, whatever kind of media you you care to mention, uh, do you turn to for insight, enjoyment, frustration, whatever? <laughs> yeah, the, there's a nice uh, potpourri of enjoyment and frustration. <laughs> I, I think as, you know, any uh, any advertising person or any I don't know hipster doofus who lives in Brooklyn, um, you know I I read the I don't know why I'm calling the New York Times now a hipster publication. You know, it just break <laughs> out from the record. Uh, Almost for the gray old lady, right? So that's true. <laughs> you know what? 
shout outs to the gray old lady. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast, just unhear what I just said. Um, uh, yeah, I, I guess um, just from a, a sheer sort of like news standpoint, um, I'm an avid New York Times reader, um, maybe to the point where it's like not so great for my spirit every morning when I'm like refreshing <laughs> it and, you know, reading about the world burning in 20 different ways. What happened in the last three minutes? I need to exactly. know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, you, you got to balance it out. Um, so to frustrate myself and, uh, you know, just be reminded of the dystopia that we live in, I read the New York Times, uh, I read the, the Wall Street Journal, I read Politico, um, you know, the, uh, I'm sure we, we could add a bunch of other, you know, news sources that get uh, bumped on my Apple news feed to me. Um, but when I'm not trying to upset myself, uh, <laughs> I listen to probably maybe slightly more goofy or I guess lighthearted stuff. Um, I listen to a lot of podcasts that are sort of like internet culture, kind of like Twitter humor mixed with um, maybe like menswear and fashion and streetwear a little bit, um, as well as maybe like politics. Um, it's this weird kind of ecosystem of podcasters who all go on each other's podcasts. Yeah. Uh, I would say, you know, I alluded to er the fact earlier that I, uh, I used to work on Reebok and I'm a big like menswear person and I, I got into streetwear through rap music. And so I've always been, I guess, like, uh, let's say, I I'm gonna say the words sartorily inclined because one of the podcast <laughs> hosts, his Instagram handle is sartorily inclined. So <laughs> shout outs to Lawrence Schlossman. You're not the only elite podcaster now that I'm on, uh, <laughs> on the podcast. Um, <laughs> I Nonetheless, the podcast is called Throwing Fits. Um, it's two guys who used to work at Complex Media who are hilarious who sort of tap into what they describe as like the millennial male zeitgeist whether that be from clothing to stand-up comedy to music to sort of any other kind of like pop culture stuff um i love yeah but still which is uh maybe a little bit more comedy oriented just very goofy internet humor type of stuff as well as how long gone uh which is more of that sort of like cultural commentary kind of stuff um and then if i want to feel smart or pretend that i'm smart while I'm drinking my coffee in the morning, I will listen to the Ezra Klein show uh, and I will pat myself on the back for being a, a smart guy for, you know, an hour. <laughs> awesome, super cool. All right, so there's some interesting stuff in there. Uh, good, so now I'm gonna get to the question that I really, really want to know, uh, but I have to circle back. Uh, God, I just said circle back, I can't believe it. Oh yeah, no, no office jargon on Ooh, this all right, so I'm going to return to uh, Def Jam, right? Um, because uh, Def Jam uh, is known, you know, as a as a rap and hip hop label predominantly. However, uh, in collaboration with Russ Rubin, they put together the legendary uh, Slayer Rain and Blood, which is the apex of metal. Period. Um, so don't let that don't let that color your answer to this question, right? So. Michael, you're stranded on a desert island, right? You have three records at your disposal uh, of your choosing, uh, of your choosing to keep you company for the rest of your days. What are those records? Well, now so, you, have, you have me looking back on my time at Def Jam, and I'm realizing that had I gone to that, that A&R guy in our meeting and said, hey, I'm really passionate about thrash metal, I think Def Jam should put out another like Slayer-esque record. Um, I think he would have said, hey, you care about this artist? Let's do it. And there you go. I, I wouldn't be here today. So- He'd be a legend. He'd be a legend. 
I, I would be, but I, I wouldn't be, uh, you know, enjoying myself in the lovely world of advertising and consumer. <laughs> so who, who knows? But nonetheless, shout outs to Slayer. <laughs> uh, I will listen to Rain and Blood later today. Um, I will start my, my list with an album that came out about two months ago uh, by a hardcore punk band called Turnstile. Uh, the album is called Glow On. Uh, and for those folks who tell themselves, hey, I, I don't want to listen to hardcore punk. That's just people yelling and, you know, that's music to be angry to. Uh, I, I would implore you and challenge you, if anything, to listen to this album because they transcend the genre. They introduce incredibly weird and bizarre sonic elements. Um, there are moments where you'll be thinking to yourself, wow, this sounds like Rage Against the Machine. This sounds like 311, but this also sounds like Blink-182. This also <laughs> sounds like Slayer. Uh, and so it is a, a lovely uh, mishmash of incredible sounds that have just coated my eardrums for the last two months. Uh, and they are my favorite band in the entire world. Uh, and if you dare say a bad word about them, I will find you. Uh, <laughs> hey, where, so, where are they from, by the way? Turnstile. They are from Baltimore, uh, the home of many lovely hardcore bands. Uh, <laughs> shout outs to the, the Baltimore scene. <laughs> All right. Uh, but I will go from Baltimore to the UK for my next album, uh, which is the, the classic uh, Arctic Monkeys album, or maybe some people think of their first album as their classic. I tend to like the second one a little bit more uh, Godfather style, I guess. Uh, Arctic Monkeys' favorite worst nightmare, uh, incredible album. Uh, cool. That was sort of, for me, just a beautiful moment of like, you know, kind of that world of indie blowing up uh, in the early 2000s. And I think just as a musician, uh, the Arctic Monkeys were so integral to my understanding of melody and like, I guess even just dynamic songwriting. And sure. so uh, I, I love that album and I, I, I still listen to it all the time and just am blown away uh, constantly. And then I promised earlier that I would get back to Kanye West because <laughs> at the end of the day, I mean, where, where would we be without Kanye West? Uh, <laughs> yep. Though I am not a fan of him as much anymore, sorry, Kanye. Uh, his, uh, his album, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, is an all-time classic, is probably the GOAT. Um, it is hanging in my bedroom, at least the, the vinyl is. And uh, I, I mean, talk about just a, a sonic, I don't even know what, just, a, what, just one of the most like ridiculous experiences you can have is listening to that album front to back. Uh, the ranging from like the production to like the lyricism, the collabs are incredible. I mean, just like Nicki Minaj's verse on Monster is uh, to be remembered forever. Uh, I now realize I don't want to co-sign Nicki Minaj uh, given her recent Twitter claims. Uh, <laughs> get, go get vaccinated, folks. Uh, <laughs> uh, but all of that is to say, uh, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy is a phenomenal album that even if you are uh, ashamed of Kanye West like I am today, you can still go back to this older album uh, and be blown away by the breadth of sound, uh, just an incredible work that he put together. And it was quite a moment in time. Uh, so yeah, those are my long-winded three favorite albums. No, no, that that's that's really cool. Um, I'm actually surprised this is uh, over 50 episodes now of the podcast and, and it's the first Kanye West mention. Um, so if you think I've got 150 plus mentions, first one Kanye West. So uh, it's about time that uh, that he got a shout out. So uh, so thanks for that. Uh, no Slayer this time around, but uh, you mentioned you're going to uh, put in some rain and, rain and blood later today. So uh, we can talk tomorrow and see if you update that list. So 
Absolutely. <laughs> I might even go with hella weights as well. I'm, you know, oh, I'm, now, now you are really talking, man. Oh, come now on. You're really man. talking. All right. Uh, <laughs> excellent. All right, Michael, this has been so much fun. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, looks like you got some light coming in the window there. So it's a good time to, uh, good time to say, Hey, I'm really glad we connected. Uh, definitely want to stay in touch. Love your story. And, uh, yeah. Rock and roll.